Victoplasm episode 76, Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. This is a counterpoint to the previous episode on George Orwell's 1984, where I covered the elements, tools and um, motivation of a dystopian, totalitarian, collectivist state. Now, Little Brother uh, was published under Creative Commons around 2007, I think. It's freely available on Project Gutenberg, and it's a great book. It's basically a young adult novel. Uh, The protagonists are in their late teens, and it's about essentially people pushing back against the uh, inception of an Orwellian state. It also includes technical commentary on how one how how the engines of surveillance work and how you can subvert them uh it i mean it's not exactly like the anarchist cookbook in that way uh it's not it's not about bomb making or anything and it's also not about causing direct harm to people but it is about the logic of surveillance uh, and the way that systems can be broken down now because it's under creative commons Cory Doctorow's uh advised the reader that they can remix it and uh, republish it as long as they adhere to the terms of the license and there are teaching resources that have been developed for these as well because there's not only commentary on um, how the state surveils but whether it should and you know the the protections under the various amendments of the constitution first amendment force free speech Cory Doctorow is Canadian I think I've got that right and he basically wrote Little Brother in a frenzy uh, over a very short period of time. I'm not sure if that was when he was flying a lot. I, I saw him talk in London at the Nine Worlds Conference, like first one or second one, and he talked about basically how starting as a, um, you know, writing a lot of novels, it was something to do on long air flights. It's a great book as well, um, and it's free. It's a real page turner. When I first read it, uh, I thought, you know, this is a... This has a lot of pace, it has believable and sympathetic characters, and I recommend you check it out, because it's free. And if you like it, obviously, then you can decide to buy some of the author's other books. Uh, There's a sequel called Homeland, for example. So, as usual, I'm going to give a synopsis of the book. Then I'm going to talk about themes, and the themes specifically here are the counterpoint to the last episode, where I'm going to talk about opposing a dystopian state, and then... There'll be a few comments at the end in in further reading after that, where I'm going to talk about uh, at least one other book, which is Eric Frank Russell's Wasp. Okay, here we go. So the premise of the book is uh, that in the wake of a terrorist attack on San Francisco's Bay Bridge, local authorities are quick to deploy surveillance measures on the population under the notion of keeping citizens safe. But it becomes really clear that these technologies are being used to deny constitutional freedoms in the name of security. And our protagonist, narrating in the first person, is Marcus Yallo. And he's a senior at his high school and he's extremely computer literate. And he uses these skills to fight back against authority. And at the same time, he's a teenager who doesn't always make the wisest moves, even though he's really smart. When the novel begins, Marcus goes by the online alias of Winston, that's uh, sorry, W1N5T0N. And that wasn't a reference I got the first time I read this, which was you know, probably at least 10 years ago. Um, but uh, obviously, I've read this back to back with 1984, so that's extremely satisfying. 
and uh, certainly deliberate, along with the, the title, obviously, there's the reference there. Um, and so this is a book as much about the right to individuality as the right to privacy. Marcus's friends are uh, Daryl, Van and Jolie, and together they're a team playing what I think is a kind of geocaching game called Harajuki Fun Madness. And there are a few other characters, including um, Marcus's liberal parents, uh, and she becomes his love interest, uh, various stereotypical school teachers, police, um, bullies, there's a particular bully called Charles, uh, and all these um, faceless, well, not entirely faceless, but caricatured people from the Department of Homeland Security, including the main villain, who is called Severe Haircut Woman. The hook is that the novel begins with Marcus and friends bunking off from school to play Harajuku Fun Madness, and this coincides with a terrorist attack on the San Francisco Bay Bridge. And because they avoid the BART, that's the um, the, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, um, they end up on the street, which is actually uh, actually a good thing because it turns out the BART was a secondary target, and had they gone onto the underground, they would have been killed with a lot of other people. But because they're on the street... They're, they're picked up by Homeland Security and illegally detained. And Marcus suffers particularly badly in this instance. Um, he, he is interrogated quite brutally, given that he's you know, 17 years old. Um, and this is almost certainly because he refuses from the outset to unlock his personal devices. He says, you know, I have a right to privacy. So they hold him for five days. And then they let it. They they let them go as if nothing had ever happened. With the warning that you know, you you don't breathe a word of this to anyone, or we'll get you, and we're watching you. And he's forced to sign papers as well that's sort of acknowledging his own incarceration. But he he personally vows to get back at them. And this is the interesting thing. He's very clever. He's also he's doing a lot of things on principle, but he's also not the smartest. There's a, there's a couple of themes running through this book, by the way, I'm skipping ahead, um, that uh, this idea that you don't trust anyone over 25. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons you don't do that is because the people under 25 um, aren't old enough to be scared or cautious. Anyway, uh, so in the wake of the bombing, as you'd expect in the novel, security has increased. And this is a, a near future where these um, small electronic devices called ARFIDs are used to physically track things. So they're in um, they're in library books and they are in uh, chip and pen cards. And, and bear in mind, you know, this is 2007. So this, this is sort of the technology is here now. And there's also other things. So there's cameras, there's things like gate recognition cameras, the idea that they identify people by the way they walk. And when Marcus gets back to his family, he spins some story about him being quarantined by the army. He doesn't tell them the truth. He then finds that his laptop, which he built himself, has been physically bugged. Somebody's come at, actually come into his house and taken it apart and inserted a keystroke logger in there. And he realises that um, he, he has a neat way of sweeping his house for bugs, but he realises that he, he might never catch them all. So it's better not to tamper with it. And he finds other ways then to circumvent surveillance. This is the thing about him. He's very tech aware and he thinks like a security professional. And you know, all the, about all the ways that people could spy on him. And also how systems break down. 
And actually, there's a really nice afterword in the book about real world security and thinking like a security expert. Anyway, the, the book going forward is, is Marcus finding ways to frustrate the DHS surveillance. Cory Doctorow writes about cryptography, how to spot video bugging devices, alternative operating systems, distributed online networks, sharing cryptographic keys between a trusted circle of activists, and, and a few other things. All of these are the steps that Marcus takes. So he says, I'm going to do this, and then he explains to the reader what it actually implies. Really, really fantastic. And he realizes that by forcing citizens to make purchases via card instead of cash, the DHS are enabling spying on the population. And, and in fact, Marcus himself is stopped by the police who have apparently set up a pre-crime division that looks at unusual activity taken on the BART network. So he's done a few uh, unusual journeys on the, um, on the underground and that causes him to get pulled over by the police on no pretext of any crime. So to break this, he finds a way of cloning the RFID data on vehicle passes and credit cards and BART passes and, and everything else has got a chip on it. And this basically overwhelms the surveillance system with false data. And he then sets up an anonymous chat network based on a Brazilian Linux and, and free Xbox hardware. So the idea is that um, somewhere in the future, Microsoft gave out free Xboxes because the money is in the games. And so everyone has these free Xboxes. So then people in, in countries where they were time time rich and cash poor found a way to hack them to make them into useful computers. And that's exactly what he uses. He uses, a, I think it's called Paranoid Linux or something, to install on the, uh, the, the Xbox, set up a network. And then he later works out how to assemble this... Um, cryptographically protected trusted network within that network so it's a network within the network he's set up because it's only a matter of time before the DHS infiltrate this uh, network that's been set up amongst these Xboxes. He even spies on the enemy by tunneling video over SNTV and uh, a few other things and I admit that I'm getting to the, like, the, the limit of my knowledge here there's, but there's a lot of interesting technical stuff the most interesting parts of the novel are about social engineering. So first of all, the way the media spins the stories and tells outright lies about the youth movement that Marcus starts under a new alias called Mikey, sorry, M1K3Y. Also, the way that certain events are completely twisted by the mainstream media. In particular, there's a free concert which is interrupted by the police with tear gas and riot gear. And that's misrepresented as a recruiting ground for impressionable youths into terror organisations. And this is countered by actual video and photographic evidence. And there are further technical tutorials on how to defeat surveillance by stripping metadata out of video footage. And I should mention that whilst this is going on, uh, Marcus is also going through the typical teen arc. You know, he, he loses best friends, he gets new lovers and experiences, conflicts with parents and other people in authority, uh, finding his voice through to political discourse, which his school wants to suppress. And, and in some ways, it does a better job of outlining the conflict between young adults and the older generation. Um, frequently, I find in young adult novels, the social conflict falls between peers and the people in the previous generation in the in the uh, level above in the hierarchy um, 
they just fall into two groups. One is uh, mental figures who, who pass knowledge on, and the other is authoritarians who are remote and they simply control the resources. But there is no debate. Both of these see the protagonist as adolescent. But in this book, you know, Marcus is believably 17 and he's also sort of a sophisticated reasoning adult. And several times I really actually felt outraged on his behalf um, about how almost everyone, even allies to him, were being condescending to him. Anyway, the climax comes when finally Marcus comes clean to his parents and they turn from being complicit in the system to actual allies and useful. And in turn, they involve a journalist who prints Marcus's story about his illegal detention and the things that Homeland Security are doing. And all the while, Marcus has been careful, but he's still wary of this network he's created. And his absolute worst fears are that it's been infiltrated by the DHS, despite all the steps that he's taken. So while the story is being published in the Bay Guardian, he's contacted by someone who's been turned by the DHS, an insider into his ring of trust. So the, the climactic plot involves multiple reveals, uh, a standoff with a childhood bully, this massive vampire LARP used as cover for the escape, um, and uh, and several reveals of, of characters previously hidden. But But he's unfortunately captured anyway by the bad guys. And here it gets uh, really dark. Um, the characters from his original interrogation return and subject him to waterboarding. And bearing in mind, he's got nothing to do with the terrorism that's actually happened. But they're still assuming that he is up to no good. So they actually waterboard him. I don't know. I, I assume the description. I don't know if the description that Dr. O gives is from experience. I really hope not. I mean, it's horrible enough to read. It is short and it's interrupted by the cavalry. Uh, who are the California State Troopers, who arrest the um, Department of Homeland Security who are acting illegally um, as they storm the illegal holding facility. And the epilogue is it's kind of bittersweet as well. So all the guards are put away, but the, the, this, the, the DHS surveillance scheme is declared illegal and it's a big victory for the Constitution, but the leader of the illegal detentions, this, this person called Severe Haircut Woman, um, she seems to get away with without punishment. So here's the really great thing. Marx's response to this is then to publish the evidence of his waterboarding to the nation. He forms a charitable non-profit of activists intent on having an impact in the forthcoming election, which is apparently a few months away. Their method is not just to present the truth, but also to get young people to vote. As I said, there's been a thread of never trust anyone over 25 running throughout the book. In fact, the originator of this phrase acknowledges that she's already 30, and so you shouldn't trust me. You shouldn't trust anyone over 25, including me. And this is the most counter-establishment notion in the book, I think. Um, the political establishment assumes a hierarchy that gains power as it ages, and so it clings on to power. And going back to 1984, Ingsoc's driving goal is immortality and holding on to power forever. So this epilogue where... Marcus, his his aim is to get others to vote and others to become activists is just such a wonderful antidote to the, uh, the grim ideas of 1984. 
So I'm going to talk about uh, themes and role-playing inspiration now. And I hope that the, the role-playing uh, opportunities are, are probably more in this uh, in this kind of premise than they would be in a straight dystopia. So uh, I think often we would pick characters who would fight against an oppressive regime because that's where the excitement is and that's where the ex expressions of individuality are. We've already done quite a bit of work in the last episode dismantling or deconstructing the dystopian state. And that was based on a couple of premises. One was the motives, and the other was the tools that they actually used. Furthermore, it was also talked about the genesis, you know, how a dystopian state comes about. I don't think we need to cover the motives of freedom fighters. There is the slight warning in 1984 that, you know, with the, with the class structure, it's the middle classes who have the ambition to uh, supplant the elites by enlisting the help of the proletariat and that's why this whole collectivist dystopia is set up it's so that that can never happen but aside from that i'm not really going to talk about motives of individuals let's assume let's talk about the strategies that they might apply to attacking the dystopian state because if they want to set up their own totalitarian state afterwards then it stands to reason that the techniques they would use would be exactly those of ingsoc going to recap then on the tools that we identified in the last episode. Now the first one is language. You see today language being framed by the state as in, in particular ways and uh, certain types of language being outlawed or frowned upon. Uh, and, and this is politics. This is how you frame an argument to win people over. And this is closely tied with media but on the whole, I think that we can take away the language element as it's written in 1984, which is actually a reduction in the ability to express oneself. Of course, uh, it is a tool of a fascist state to reduce the ability of the, of, of the people to do art. And so if you wanted, you know, you want a starting point for your freedom fighters, you might start with artists and people on the fringes, people who are interested in punk rock and graffiti and outsider art art with a subversive political message now of course that is a feature of little brother when when marcus attends the rock concert which is you know illegal and everyone is encouraged not to trust anyone over 30 but mostly i think that's going to be color so if you want to sort of a foundation for your characters making them artists is you know, it, it works for me, certainly. And it does mark them out as people who are anti-establishment, even a small amount, of, you know, people with a bit of creativity who want to see beyond the, uh, the world that's presented to them by the establishment. So the next tool we should address is surveillance. And it's the measures which are, uh, are used by the state and those which can be countered by our protagonists and this takes up a lot of the book uh, for example when when marcus first uh, comes back home and he realized that his own laptop has been bugged with a keylogger that uh, he has to be careful but what he also has to be careful of is not actually removing that because then the authorities would realize he was onto them so he then has to find a completely different way of communicating with his people 
which has nothing to do with the channels which were being observed. And, you know, this is a staple of spy fiction with, uh, you know, dead drops and um, various other means of communication, codes, key codes, um, passwords. Uh, there is a point in the novel, of course, when um, they set up the circle of trust where they share public and private keys so that they can decrypt each other's messages and they know absolutely that those messages have come from who they say they are. They create this circle of trust. And this is inside this rogue network that they've already set up based on these hacked up Xboxes. And this is 2007. And of course, we have different ways of looking at social media today. Uh, we also have notions of the dark web. Um, and we have notions of closed groups. All, all of all of our social media and communications are overseen by large corporations who have their own interests. Not the governments. I mean, they resist government intrusion into those. There are privacy laws, but nonetheless, they're not owned. So the 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 thing about the Xbox network that's created uh, this sort of ultra secure paranoid Linux that's installed on it. That's actually a network that is owned by the rebels. It exists within, I assume, normal communication networks. So you've got to think about, you're creating this cabal, this um, community of activists. They're interested in art and they are hiding in plain sight. They have a mechanism by which they say they trust one another and they have a means uh, of communicating with a specific network, which... You know, you assume it's perfectly legal and therefore the state can't do anything about it, but the state is still interested in trying to infiltrate it. And there are other things about surveillance, of course, which you have less control over. So anything uh, at street level where people's faces are being observed and facial recognition is being used to mark people's movements, um, that you can't really control. You can control better things like... Um, uh, RFID tags on clothes or bugs that are planted by agents just to see where people are going. And one of the points early on in the story is um, where Marcus is pulled over by police because he realises the RFID tags in people's metro passes are being used to create a data set of where everybody goes and look for outliers in that data set which would indicate suspicious activity. It's, it's again, it's this sort of pre-crime, thought crime type of behaviour, um, specifically applied to who's using what public transport. So one of the ways you get around that bit of surveillance is to only carry cash. You find a way to totally anonymise your purchases, your movements, um, your appearance. There's, there's a thing about gate recognition cameras and those are defeated in a very simple way. Marcus puts stones in his shoes, so he limps in a particular way, and he changes which shoe he puts a stone in. So it can never build up a reliable data set. There's going to be too much statistical noise in whatever data set that's set up. Now, when you do this, and here's where the game comes in, the enemy is going to be interested, and it's going to try and find ways of penetrating these counter-surveillance techniques. It'll try and find ways into the circle of trust. That's one thing. Um, so if you've got a mole in your circle of trust who has the shared keys that everyone is using to communicate, looks legitimate, but is informing 
on the other characters, that's going to be a problem for you. I can imagine that could lead to some quite tense role-playing situations when you're not sure who the traitor is, but there's a strong indication it's one of the other players. That'd be cool. Now, the other way that the state can try and shut everything down and the ways it tries to shut things down by making arguments to suspend the First Amendment. Um, is it First Amendment? Fifth Amendment? I can't remember. There's, there's Obviously, there's the right to free speech. There's the right to um, to not have unreasonable search and seizure. But one of the techniques the government might use to suppress uh, to suppress activism is by finding ways to legitimately or, or apparently legitimately suspend these freedoms and this then comes back to uh, the motivation and the, and the real horror of the situation of this sort of this burgeoning dystopian state is where you say uh, you know you we we legitimize the suspending of certain freedoms because we are in a situation where there are a bunch of terrorists and we need to catch them. And so, uh, you know, with that comes the whole statement of, well, if you, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, um, and excuses exactly the abuses that are visited on Marcus and, and his friends in the early parts of the book. The state will probably do two different things. One, it's going to try and delegitimize the efforts of the activists. It's going to paint them in an unpleasant political light. It's going to call them terrorists, which it does in the book. And the other thing, of course, is it will find ways to get around the essential freedoms by saying that by making them appear reasonable. To do this, it's going to use another very, very important tool, which is the media. Media and propaganda are a big part of the dystopian control. And there's specifically a bit in little brother where in the aftermath of the illegal concert even though there is there is footage of what went on of for example the teens being pepper sprayed by uh, an unbelievably heavy-handed police force um, and you know clubbed in the street being unarmed and uh, but this being reported on in a completely disingenuous and you know false way saying that, uh, oh, well, there, there was rampant drug abuse and that's why the police were sent in, or saying it wasn't that bad. The counterpoint to that, the, the, the tool the activists use against this propaganda, is sharing actual footage, which, you know, sounds familiar, doesn't it? You, uh, the, the famous quote that um, the party commanded you to ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears, it was the, their final and most essential command. That's been thrown about quite a bit when we've, we've got video footage of protesters in the United States being beaten up by police with, totally without provocation. And thank goodness we're in an age where everyone has a, a recording device on them. And that is another way of fighting back. So if you've got the state presenting doctored evidence that suggests that the the um, protesters, activists or whatever are not peaceful, they do not have a reasonable agenda, they are, um, in this case, they are you know, being indoctrinated by Al-Qaeda, then the mainstream media will report that and they'll generally get the support of 
of the population in condemning the activists. And the activists will still be in a minority and they will still find it harder to function. The way the activists fight back is to publish the counter evidence, you know, raw footage of police abuses and showing a different context to the footage, showing that the media's presentation is biased and doctored. And I think that's something that you could have in a game. I talked last episode about Max Hedrum and why I liked it. Uh, you know, it was a journalism in a dystopian future state where uh, the journalists themselves, they, they, will, they will have their own agenda, they'll have their obligation. But if you have journalists who are striving to actually show the truth they'll come up against the people they don't who don't want that be that a, um, a mega corporation or a fascist state or private individuals who don't want to be shown up for what they're doing uh, and of course in um, one of the things in max headroom is there's uh, the weekly episodes the, on the sort of monster of the week type of plotting they had the different abuses that technology can be put to in the future cyberpunk state and that's what's being reported on whether it's that or whether you're actually just providing counter evidence that is something that pcs pc activists can do they can film and so the objective in a game session by session isn't necessarily going into a dungeon and fighting monsters and or beating up police you know it's it's not direct confrontation with police because that actually serves the media's point what it is though that the goal should be to film everything and document everything so if you want to run a session with your activists coming up against the state and trying to uncover their abuses what they probably do is try to um, get in a position where they can film what is going on then they have to somehow get that footage safely home and then they have to process it and publish it on their personal network which is then you know broadcast by um, the sympathetic news feeds and maybe even the mainstream media and that's how you start to oppose the propaganda i think that you know you could actually make a game out of that because that's something the pcs can do the other thing I covered in 1984, that the last tool is this consumption and perpetual war. And this is really going to be more of a backdrop of, of why things are the way they are. So let's consider sort of consumption and perpetual war. Why a war is being perpetrated. This could be the great lie that is being covered up. This might be the reason the activists are doing what they're doing. It could also be a consumption-based concern like laying an oil pipeline um, or like a particularly awful sweatshop conditions that the people want to want to expose or it could be um, corruption in high office that you want to expose so i think it all fits together there's a counterpoint to each one of the tools that you have in 1984 and you assemble those together and it's quite gameable so to recap your activists have an interest in art, counterculture. That is what binds them together. They found a way to trust each other unequivocally and to own the network by which they communicate. That network is under attack by state surveillance trying to penetrate into it 
at all times and find out how the people are. And you can assume there's going to be people on the ground who are going to try and tag your characters with RFID chips or try to make them with surveillance or try to observe where they're going or use gate recognition just to find out who they are. So your activists are going to have to have a sort of anonymity rating. They will have an incomplete database of who they are. Each one of them will have a file held by the authorities and they need to try to try to keep their profile as low as possible as much as they can. And of course there might be a mole inside which could hurt that profile. And then of course your your activist once you've got this set up, what do they do? Probably it's going to be to expose what is being done. Counter propaganda, show the lie that's being perpetrated and the reason that the lie is being perpetrated. Yeah, that sounds like an okay game. So for the last bit of the episode, I want to talk about other media and other themes. I've, I mentioned Max Headroom. I won't mention it again, but I have I have a very, very soft place in my heart for that. Um, you know, very 80s thing. I'm going to talk about another book that I just finished um, by Eric Frank Russell called Wasp. And this was published in 1957. Um, he's written some great books. British author, I think died around 1978. Um, I have two of his books, Wasp and The Great Explosion. Um, Wasp is all about the Terran government fighting a war against uh, its enemy, the Syrians. Um, slightly unfortunate name, uh, but the they are a um, I'm not sure if it's dictatorship or commonwealth or whatever, but a, another stellar civilization uh, who are technologically less advanced than Earth, but much more numerous, so they can't win an outright war. So the wasp that they're talking about is, uh, it goes back to the anecdote that's given in the first chapter of this, where our protagonist, James Maori, is sold the idea of becoming an agent of the Terran government placed on enemy soil as a wasp. The anecdote is that uh, somebody driving along, um, four people in a car, and suddenly a wasp flies in the window, and because it creates such a distraction, it causes the car to crash and four people are killed. And there are various other examples of this, but they've had this general term of a wasp is this tiny, almost unseen force that causes a massive amount of damage um, far beyond its size. So, Mary ascents, and he is then placed on um, this alien planet. And they choose him because he's actually, uh, I believe the Syrians and Terrans weren't always at war. Mary has something of a Syrian upbringing, so he finds it easier to blend in. And he's given, um, he has physical modifications made. Uh, he can also disguise himself very effectively. He's given an, uh, an enormous amount of funds to, to do what he does. Um, and uh, the technology also to pull off a number of acts of minor and major terrorism. And the way he does it is essentially set up um, a whole lot of propaganda concerning a fake anti-Syrian movement within the Syrian uh, population itself uh, called Dirac Angustan Gesept, or DAG. 
and he starts by um, the, the first things he does is is he gets a whole load of stickers and in disguise sticks this propaganda to various things, various windows all over a, a city. He's got he's got several phases of action that he's supposed to take, and the first one is this kind of leafleting. But because they're stickers, when people see them, they try to remove them, and suddenly they're etched into the glass. And so his first act is to cause a nuisance of of basically this um, propaganda being etched into glass all over the city causing massive disruptions the glass is replaced and starting to spread rumors and this escalates to uh, he, he employs local thugs to assassinate people then takes credit for those assassinations with propaganda he sends um notes to uh he sends notes to various officials um he also he steals a franking machine to and headed notepaper from um i think as a major or a colonel who he takes a dislike to on a train and murders he, he claims uh the the murder in the name of uh dag and then he sends out letters and he sends out devices that sound like bombs that tick uh, with the idea that they will end up being dismantled and found that they're not actually bombs, they're just uh, propaganda devices to make people scared. Then he sends out other ticking devices that will actually blow up. So uh, that's the, the next wave. People say, oh, it's another ticking device. Open it up and it kills everyone in the room. He finds ways to bust people out of jail. He starts running with criminals. All the while, he's adopting various identities, which means he can't be traced back. His his um, the actions of uh, actual the murders that are committed are on his criminal compatriots, not him. And he's constantly on the run, so he's always on the on the lookout for the secret police and the military police and other officials trying to find him. It's a short book as well. It's, um, it slips down really easily and it gets tenser and tenser. As you can imagine, as he winds up the local government more and more, then the rumours of what this movement are spread and they get distorted and they become way, way bigger than anything he could have done on his own. So all these propaganda efforts, uh, they suggest that there is really something rotten in the heart of of the their the enemy's society so he's constantly reminded that his time is finite and that drives the pace on it's like sort of uh, the things he doesn't rest as well and so you get a real sense of how he's constantly on alert he's um, hyper vigilant all the time and therefore he must be exhausted all the time so as well as being funny and pacey and interesting it's also that there's this real. I felt there's a real human element, human element to the story, uh, where I felt real sympathy for the wasp. So, great book, Wasp by Eric Frank Russell. But I'm mentioning it here because he is also doing a kind of activism. Now, we've assumed um, in the sort of talking about the other themes that um, your activists, in a lot of ways, they're being reactive to what the state is doing. They're they're having to do a counter move to what the state is doing. Here, we've got acts of actual terrorism. Now, um, first of all, if you want to blur the line between activism and terrorism, that is something to consider here. Your activists will be non-violent, they're interested in showing the truth. Your terrorists are actually interested in causing other people to be afraid. 
and then they may or may not be bothered about causing death and real hurt to real people. But it's the methods that Mara uses in his uh, one-person crusade that we can take notice of. So um, instead of showing the truth, he's building up a fake organisation and he's making it to look scary. Those are tactics that your activists could use. But crucially, the reason it's being done is as a distraction so that the enemy is weakened before the Terran invasion. So if you're going to put that into your sort of activist scenario where they're not only communicating, they're also sowing counter-propaganda themselves, you've got to say, well, what's the end state? The end state must be to wind up the population. So at the moment, the population is in the thrall of the state. They are being convinced by the state that the activists are up to no good. And the state is using all kinds of tricks. Uh, It's lying directly. It's using footage out of context. It's naming people. It's, it's, um, It's sacrificing people to the narrative that it wants to do. When it comes to the sort of terror aspect of this, you know, the Maori's um, propping up the DAG, that act is basically to destabilise and confuse the enemy. So misdirection could be part of your anti-fascist, anti-dystopian movement. But at some point you've got to say, well, what's the end, what's the end goal? And it only, this distraction only really works if there's an army on the other side preparing to invade. So that could be a scenario you've got, you, you, you have a, um, you know, a science fictional or fantasy dystopian state with um, support from outside who want to help the activists, then you might get your activists to do that just to destabilize everything, just to destabilize everything, turn the population against the state and that sort of thing. But most of the time, and certainly in the case of uh, both 1984 and in Little Brother, we're talking about a single state where you have people who, they are working within their own society, they don't want to hurt their own society. So I think that's a decision you have to make and you have to then analyse what your activists are doing, what the end state is and whether the end justifies the means. Does, for example, hurting or killing police officers actually help the uh, cause or does it do more harm than good? I would have thought, you know, the latter. Anyway, those are my thoughts um, coming towards the end of the episode. So... So thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share and subscribe. Reach out to me on social media. I'm getting a bit more active on Twitter now, so I am listening. Um, And I hope you'll join me for the next episode. Take care.